guys. We turned out okay. The Modern Parent's Guide to Old School Parenting. I want to hang upside down from the swing set. Welcome to We Turned Out Okay with host Karen Locke Cole. I want to climb to the top of that tree. And now, here's your host, Karen Locke Cole. Today's guest is all about sharing and connection. His book, Be the Gateway, helps writers, artists, and other creative people connect with those who will get the most benefit from what they have to offer. He's been featured in many publications, including the book Author in Progress, Poets and Writers Magazine, the National Endowment for the Arts, Artworks Blog, and many others. He works personally with creative professionals, with publishers. He speaks at top publishing conferences. He organizes in-person events and festivals. And on top of all of that, he's a creator himself. He's worked in many mediums, including poetry, paper, sculpting, photography. He's got a great podcast that I love called Dabblers vs. Doers. In a world where so much of the news is bad news, where just scanning the headlines can feel like walking in a minefield, today's guest's Friday's newsletter is a breath of fresh air, something I look forward to all week. Not only does his newsletter help me feel connected to the wider world of creative people, there's always something concrete in it for me to do, some puzzle for me to solve. And the cool thing is that the solutions to those puzzles come oftentimes from inside me. It's as if my guest were advising me from in my own head. There's always pictures of my guest's two young sons, who I'm willing to bet are closer in age to your children than my own, mine are teenagers now. Which prompted me to wonder, when you have a newborn baby and a small child, how do you accomplish as much as today's guest does? How do you keep all those balls in the air? I'm so glad he's here to help us figure it all out and answer these thorny questions. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dan Blank. Welcome, Dan. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Oh, you're welcome. It's a real pleasure. Like, I'm almost feeling a little bit of a fangirl thing because I, I've i heard you, I've heard your podcast, I've heard you entering, interviewing KJ Delantonia, and um, I, I just love that newsletter. I mean, I, it really, I wasn't lying. It really, really makes my week. I wasn't kidding. It's such a great thing. It is very kind of you. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. So in your... In, on your website, in your bio, you talk about an art teacher that you once had named Mrs. Flanagan. And you talked about how much you loved her basement classroom and it was covered with murals and splotches of paint. And it got me wondering, how did Mrs. Flanagan foster your creativity? So when I was young, my mom was the creative parent of our family. So she would be doing cross-stitch and painting and all kinds of things like that. Of my brother and I, my brother's three and a half years older, I was the creative kid. And I'm, I'm not sure exactly when that made itself clear, but around age five, my mom signed me up for these art classes. And we, uh, you know, we grew up in central Jersey. It was the suburbs. And uh, at Miss Flanagan's house, it's a ranch house in the woods. You go around the back through the basement entrance. Um, and it was neat. When you descend the stairs, I mean, what you saw was tons of paintbrushes and canvases and a slop sink and the murals. And I suppose that what she did in thinking about it was just illustrating that creativity is a practice. Yeah. Um, that it was the type of thing where there was always something new to learn, something new to experiment with. Um, and you saw it as this, this place where there, it wasn't inaccessible. Her materials were as basic as you can get. And she was very passionate. She, you know, she taught little kids out in the suburbs in mm -hmm. the 70s and 80s. So this was someone who had to be very positive. She had a, you know, a party once a year and we'd 
have all these really fun projects. So to me, it just seemed always very positive and very accessible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like hidden up on a shelf somewhere. This isn't for you kind of a thing. Like you can look at it, but you can't do anything else with it or whatever. Right. I mean, I can remember when I was older, if I would visit a friend at Pratt or School of Visual Arts or FIT in the city, where you go in and there's like a classroom setting and you know that the, the instructor is accomplished and they lecture you or, you know, you, you feel already like you'll never get to a level. I don't know if it's because of the age or because of the context, but it just always seemed like this was accessible. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm not sure the effect. I'm talking about it now. I'm sure it had a profound effect. Do you know, have you ever heard of the artist and illust- the writer and illustrator for children's books, Tommy DePaula? Is that a familiar name to you? I don't know. Oh. I'm going to say no. But oh, I'm, I'm sure. so excited because your children are still young enough that you guys are going to love getting to know Tommy DePaula. So he's got, I'm thinking about him. And actually, I've got this book out of the library. I, I was in preparing for our interview. I wanted to, I was remembering this book. Uh, it's called The Art Lesson. And so Tommy DePaula is a really... Uh, uh, like he, I found his books in the classics section of our young, you know, readers library, uh, like of our of the children's section of our of our library. And he's got like he's got one really famous series of books about Strega Nona, who's like a an Italian sort of magic working witch, and 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 he's just got he's got tons and tons of books, and they're always like Tommy DePaula's art is really. It's just so uh, simple and like delightful, and and you can all I find after years of knowing about him, I can always tell a Tommy DePaula, uh, you know, book just be just based on the uh, the illustrations. In fact, actually, I, as I think about it, our we have a uh, oh, what's it called? The Night Before Christmas, you know, the poem, The Night Before Christmas, and it's illustrated by Tommy DePaula, which is just wicked cool. Anyway, I, there's my little. So I'm gonna link to. I think what I'm gonna do is link to Tommy DePaula's Amazon page. That way, like listeners and and you, Dan, if you want, you can find it. Uh, he's he's ri- just written so many books, and they're just so great to get out of the library, and you can look at them again and again. They're wonderful. So he's got this book called The Art Lesson, and it's autobiographical, and it's so it's so interesting like i knew it was going to come up and you were just mentioning that like you you would see or hear from people who were going to art school and these teachers were very accomplished and everything and so tommy writes about being before he went to kindergarten he was always always drawing and in this book he talks about how he was so excited to go to kindergarten where there would be like a real art teacher with real art lessons and his brother his big brother says well you only get one the big drawback is you only get one piece of paper in the art lesson and when he gets to school he discovers that the art lessons are like totally not what he thought of at all there's all these rules that you can break and you can't have your own crayons you have to use the school crayons and like you do only get one piece of paper and he he's like but wait a minute and the teacher says I want you to copy exactly exactly what I'm doing. The art teacher says, copy this exactly. And he's like, wait a minute, you can't copy. Like, that's not what you do in art. And and so together, they kind of figure out a way for him. This was, I think this really happened to him, you know, like he was back in the 40s or 50s or something like that. And, and they, so they figure out a way for little Tommy to like actually do some drawing in school that isn't that isn't that and that you know, isn't this model on the board that the teacher's drawing. And like it, I love that book and it made me think of kind of what you do because it's it is all about fostering creativity and how like you if you put too many constraints if you say to a kid you know follow this do only this I mean 
as a teacher, I know that that's a that's a really can be really damaging to creativity, but it's also just so it's such a bummer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, if, if there's two things I can think about being creative and also integrating with your life, it's that it's a process of finding out. And the sooner you understand that, the less pressure you feel of wanting to know the one exact right way. Mm-hmm. And married with that, and again, I think this applies to both creativity and, and living a life creatively, is boundaries are good. Without boundaries, you don't have most of the great art of civilization. So when you have these boundaries, it in, in the end, it ends up helping the art. So when you come up against them in your own life, you want to kind of view it that way if possible. Absolutely. And I, I actually have written in my notes that there's an idea that some constraints are necessary to creation when you think about like necessity as the mother of invention. And I wanted to ask you what you thought about that idea. And I, I think you just summed it up for us that you, you do need some kind of boundaries. I wonder why. I mean, why? <laughs> you know? I mean, this is why I like reading about or listening to interviews or studying how great movies were made or great albums were made is you sort of realize, um, I think that when you have all the options in the world, it's, it's easy to, (laughs) I'm not sure. It's this idea of, I, I think in the end life happens. So you're going to have boundaries. And when you understand that, that great art is made in spite of boundaries, you start realizing that you have to make do with what you have. I don't know if they're required in any kind of universal sense, mm-hmm. but I will look at um, how great art was made, and you start realizing that um, I have a, a post I was reading, I wrote this a couple of years ago, about how the movie The Godfather was made, mm-hmm. um, which is this classic prototypical movie. And when you actually study how it was made, you realize that they hired Coppola because they wanted a young a uh, filmmaker who, get, who they thought would get it done quick and cheap. They saw this as a very small movie. Hmm. And then he had a big vision for it. And there's a point at which the, the, the head of the studio literally said to him, Marlon Brando will never be in this movie. They hated the idea of Al Pacino being in the movie. They hated the idea of, um, I'm trying to think of, uh, who, paid, who played the uh, concierge, cons, uh, Tom, Tom Hagen. Yeah. Um, but everything about what the movie was, he was pushed against it in almost the harshest way and it was a time at which he had he was young he did not have money he had young kids at home Mm -hmm. and just thinking about being Coppola when you're trying to raise a family you're trying to live your vision you're trying to do well in Hollywood and everything's against you and everyone is saying you're going to fail in the biggest way and just what that fear must have been like and realizing that the the movie came out with is legendary it's just so interesting to think that that's possible despite those circumstances and I so I know in my own kind of my own creative journey like I part of the reason I would say pretty well the reason that there is a podcast and that I that I am being creative in this way because I really do think there's a lot of creativity that goes into this is I I got a chronic illness so six years ago I developed a uh, chronic illness as it was in a reaction to an antibiotic that I had taken and I, I mean, I'm still sort of living with the consequences of it today. Although, you know, in the last not quite year, I've been feeling much, much better because of probiotics, which I think is, so, but that's another story. But without the, I, I was in a terrible place. You know, I had like 5% use of my hands at one point uh, in the summer of 2000 and I think 13. And 
I, but I still had like my mind, you know what I mean? I still like, I, I couldn't do much that was physical, especially not in the way of like, you know, with my arms or whatever. But I had a friend say to me like, well, okay, you know, the regular stuff that homemakers do is off the table for you. You're not folding laundry. You're not cooking. But what can you do? You've got a lot of time on your hands. What can you do? And and I know listeners have kind of heard this before, but what it did was it like that was a, I, I sort of have come to view that as the constraint that I had to push against. And if I hadn't had that constraint to push against, I, I don't think there would there would be a podcast because I would have been doing my own regular thing. You know what I mean? Like I wouldn't have had the kind of the same motivation. Do you do you I mean, do you understand what I'm what I mean? Does that make oh, sense? I absolutely do. I, I think something that I'm always wondering at is how many people that you meet who have an illness or a health issue and you talk to them about it years later and they say, thank goodness, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And what they mean is that it forced them, one, to take a break. And I think a lot of people just get on a treadmill. They think, well, I've got to go to college and get the job. I've got to keep doing yes. the job to get up. And I'm, like, you can't even take a month off because it, the whole contraption will break. Yeah, so I think yeah. there's a break with it, but I also think there's a reassessment about they have had to face extraordinarily serious questions and really, really live with them. And that yeah, creates yeah. A, a moment where they have to explore yeah. What matters to them in clarity. And I think a lot of people, um, it's not that they don't do that, but they don't have such a profound moment where they get to do yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, and it's in real time. You're sort of confronted with these moments where you're like, you can't, you can't do anything else but be in your head. <laughs> and, and I have goosebumps right now. I mean, I just, that is so true about my, my experience. And what's neat about it is once I started taking those, once I started saying, I'm moving towards like what eventually became this. It was almost a year later that that it became a podcast. But when I started to say, you know what, I, there's more to me than just hands that don't work. Like, what else can I do kind of a thing? And once I started taking steps toward that, like, I, I think of it as sort of the universe moved in that way. But like, I got help from everybody who loved me and wanted me to be happy. And want, like, I remember my husband saying like, you know, he's, he took on, he had to take on a lot of stuff. And, and he basically said, you know what, I will do whatever you need me to do to help you achieve this because it's making you feel so much better. It's make, you know, you're contributing, the idea of contributing positively to the world, like that. And, and I think without the, what you were just saying, without that sort of like everything else must stop, you know, and it, it had, because it just has to, because that's what, that's where you are right now. Uh, that was a big I, I contributor. I will say that you clearly married well. I did. <laughs> yes, I'm very lucky that way. I did marry well. Uh, he was a good choice. And, and I knew it from the moment I shook his hand for the first time. So we've been married uh, this, this summer, not to get all romancy, but this summer was our 20th anniversary. So it's been, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been exciting. Uh, and it also makes me remember um, the expression that Flannery O'Connor, the, the author, is really super famous for, which is she once said that, or maybe she wrote it and said it more than once, that lupus was a gift from God. She had she suffered from lupus. And I mean, at the time, I read that only after I'd been three or four years into this. And I was like, oh, you know what? That makes that makes sense. I think if I'd read it before that, I might have felt angry about it, you know, but I didn't because I was like, she's right. <laughs> so anyway. Love it. Yeah, yeah. I I just have to share about one of my all time favorite Friday newsletters of yours. And I think you, you'll probably know what's coming. It's the one about Mick Jagger. You, you wrote a 
was probably a couple months back in May, you wrote about how um, Mick Jagger isn't the most handsome guy. You know, he's not maybe the best singer. He's not even a great dancer. But you point out he's Mick Jagger. Like he he knows it. He has the confidence inside. And you even link to it like an early, uh, I don't know what it was, an Ed Sullivan show or something like that, where you can watch him. Like, and he's he's just so smooth because he's Mick Jagger. But you're right. He's not, he's not. It, like there's something special in him that he sees that that like he's not going to let anybody tear that down and i just think that's that's so important i'm wondering why did that resonate with you i mean with the work that i do everything that i do is collaborative so with with my work i like to be in the trenches with creatives and, and really my whole life not only have i been a, a creator of, of different forms but all my friends I, I had all the art friends and all the drama friends all the music friends um, during college, I managed a, a bookstore cafe and we had open mic night and we had bands and we had all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And one thing that you notice with people, cause every, we're all human, we all go through it is, is feeling that, well, you know, I want to do this and trying to do that, but, but here's the problem. And that problem is always to them, the thing that holds them back. And they, they feel that it's truly a wall. It's something they can't get past. And again, this is why I like talking to people and studying and studying famous people who've done well, as you start realizing that we, we overlook that. We overlook that um, Mick Jagger is quote unquote good looking because he's Mick Jagger. He mm-hmm. sounds good because he's Mick Jagger. Yeah. He moves good because he's Mick Jagger. If you look at it objectively, especially back in 1960 or 1964, you know, he moves a little funny. He's not the most traditionally attractive guy, although, of course, he's attractive. His voice is it's fine. I mean, it's not great. Um, mm-hmm. It's sort of like what you look at with, with Dylan, where Bob Dylan does not have the most traditionally melodic voice. Yeah. But and it he's works. one of the greatest writers of any sort of all time. Yeah, yeah. And he sort of worked past that. Um, and I, I think it gets past that objective as well, and I think that was the, the folk movement as well. You're at a time where rock and roll... And realizing that a simple, you know, a person, a, a man or a woman with a guitar or harmonica could create something just as moving. Uh, mm-hmm. So for me, it's a reminder. I, I really do think of that idea of what separated, what what was it like the very first time Mick Jagger got on stage in some little place, some school dance in the 50s. Mm-hmm. And you realize he was Mick Jagger because he had the confidence of Mick Jagger. And the world had to bend to that. Yeah. And I'm not pretending that any of you or even me would have that kind of confidence, but knowing that it exists is just mind blowing to me. And I think it starts putting cracks in these things that we feel are barriers. Yeah. Yeah. That's a neat way to think of it. I'm I'm just wondering, have you ever had a moment where you were like, oh my God, I can't do this thing that I'm signed on to do or that I'm, you know, that's due next week or something like that. And, and how am I going to get this done and do like, what do you, when you're feeling less than confident, what, what do you do about that? That's a great question. So, so there's a number of ways that I, I try to approach this. Um, one is I've, now I can say this now, I've developed some close collaborators. Mm-hmm. So there are people that I could text right now or call right now, but I would be interrupting them. You know, these are, you know, these people are living their lives where, I could say, look, I've just got to talk through something. I, I just need your help. I could say that kind of thing where I would feel comfortable saying, I'm a little confused. I'm a little freaked out. Just bear with me. 
Um, and these are people that I trust. Um, yeah. And I think that that's one way to do it because I find that whenever people are truly in a, in a bad place, they isolate themselves and they start feeling alone and talking to one person who will listen and who will be a sounding board. And even if they just validate, if they just say, wow, that does suck. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that can really be life changing. Um, so that's one thing is just having people that you know you can call and who will hear you out and you don't feel judged and maybe they'll help, but even just even talk it out is helpful. Um, I'll look at it. I'll know that if I'm going through something like that, but usually some part of that is emotional. And I'm mm -hmm. at the point now where I'll, I'll be able to say, all right, some part of how I'm acting is emotional and I'm going to give myself 24 hours to let that emotion dissipate. So I know that, you know, part of any overcoming a challenge is a sense of a cognitive dissonance, which is you thought it was going to go one way. It seems to be going the other way and your brain or your emotions can't quite process it. Mm -hmm. And that dissonance creates a lot of panic. Yes. So give yourself time to get through the panic. Um, another thing I try to do is, is figure out what is one action I can take to better this. Um, I'll actually give you a really, really clear example of this um, that just happened. And I wasn't freaked out by this, but it's how I worked through it, where uh, recently I was asked to speak at a conference. It was going to be virtual, but um, it was on a weekend. Yeah. So already I don't do any business things. I don't do engagements like that on weekends, but I talked to them. They seemed lovely. It was going to be an hour in August, no big deal. Mm -hmm. So we booked it um, and it was going to be fun. So, you know, who am I that I can't do an hour in August for a speaking thing? So then um, I'm planning my kid's birthday party and realizing, uh-oh, it has to be on the same day, and it really has to be at the same time as the speaking event. Oh, boy. So, and it, I really sat down, and I said, well, let me let me sit down and think about it. I'm like, is there any way around that? And I kind of made a few phone calls. I was like, no, it really has to be at this time. So I thought, well, now I feel bad. I feel like I've let this person down. I'm creating a problem, all these different things. I said, let me, let me how can I fix this? And that wasn't so freaked out where I had to call friends or anything, but I sent an email right away saying, look, this problem just came up. I'm trying to work through it. I'll email you within 24 hours. I did that right away just so that it's flagged on their end. Yeah. And then the next day I, I said, okay, I've confirmed. I absolutely have to back out and I've created this massive problem for you. It was entirely my fault. And I apologize for that. You know, I, I think that owning your mistakes is important. I oh, think it's yeah. important for other people to hear. It's important to say, and then I thought, well, what can I do to help? So I've totally messed this up for them. There's no way around that. I've done that. I'm never getting out of that. Like, they might hate me, and that's fine. Um, so one is owning that, but that's like, what can I do to help? And I said, well, here's a couple options. I can record something or do a live thing for you at any other time. We could do a free webinar for all your people. I can pre-record something that you play at the event. Um, we, I can do something like that. I'm more than happy to. Mm -hmm. I can also work with you to help you find a replacement and maybe someone even more prominent than me. Um, and, and then I'm open to other ideas. Let me know how I can help. And in the end, that's part of what we did. They were actually very lovely about it. They were very understanding. And we found out another way I can help out. Um, and a lot of it is, is, is letting the emotions be a little bit separate from really thinking, how can I fix this? Or even thinking, well, why am I freaked out? Um, what part of this is emotional and what part of this is reality or what part of it is connected to the actions I take? Um, and even thinking like after this call, I have a, like a, you know, home improvement guy coming over to give, give me an estimate on something. You know, we bought this house, it's a hundred year old house 
and that we went through a renovation all at once and I managed it. And I remember where you literally, I literally had eight people coming over a day. I had three or four workers working on top of each other. I was supervising the whole thing. And I got to the thing where I said, you know what? I'm just going to worry about decisions I have to make tomorrow. Because if we're going to get a new furnace next week and I've got to decide, will it be steam or water or electric? I'd have to make that decision until Friday. And right now it's only Monday. I'm going to worry about that on Thursday. Yeah. So I kind of compartmentalized it thinking, what do I have to decide for tomorrow? Let me make that decision. Let me get everything set for tomorrow and I'll deal with the next thing next. And I think that when you're on your own and you're a creative, it's, it's very easy. The image I always have is if you have a, a table full of plates, and each of those plates are problems or things you're worried about. When you're on your own, you tend to tip that table towards you. So all those plates come sliding onto your lap at mm-hmm. once. So true. When the, reality, when the reality is they're all important things, but you don't have to deal with all of them at once Yeah. because you have to sleep. <laughs> yeah. It's like that analysis paralysis, you know, the idea that you, you, you go like, oh, my God, I can't take any step because I don't know what to do. Yes. Yeah. And, and that is – that's so – it's so true that that can really, really freeze you. And, you know, your ideas of, or your, your two step, I love this. It's almost like a two step plan. First, you, you ask yourself, who can I talk to about this? Where, you know, you've got a support system for yourself. And then you, and then you say, okay, what's one thing I can actually do about this? And, and do you find that sometimes that involves breaking down the big, like the big scary thing or whatever into smaller and smaller like you can say, you can you can sort of logic it. You can say, okay, well, like you're talking about with your house where, okay, the furnace is until Friday. I don't have to worry about that now. I can focus on this. But like if you're, if it's a creative endeavor, is there a difference in thinking if you're sort of like, well, or even if you're trying to manage, you know, a household, because most people listening have young kids and, and you do as well. And so there's all these balls in the air, like all the time. Do you ever find that this is a useful way of figuring out what, what ball do I grab next? <laughs> what, what do I pick Yeah, up? I think so. Because I think that emotion is part of it. What you, everyone has narratives. Everyone has triggers, types of worry. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I mean, years ago when I was doing a lot more speaking than I, I seek out right now, you know, or if, you, if I had a big presentation to give and it was, you know, going to be for hundreds of people and it had to be a 100-point power uh, deck, I remember that what I would do is, we have that thing of starting. It's, it's a real fear. So what I would do is um, I'd say I'm going to start it today and I'd put time block on my calendar. And then I would literally, my first step would be I would create the PowerPoint file mm-hmm. and I would title the PowerPoint file. I'd put a folder on my desk and maybe I'd put the, the first slide with, you know, presentation for such and such. Then maybe if I was really ambitious, I would create the slide that says about damn blank and I'd create the last slide that said thank you. Mm-hmm. And there, I started it. And yeah. what I found was that alleviated a lot of the pressure of starting. Yeah. And then the next day, I could go in and say, let me create three slides that will represent a narrative arc. So maybe first I'll tell this story. Maybe then I'll talk about this process. Maybe it'll end with this. And it'll just be a sketch. And now I have a deck with a narrative arc. And then the next day, I would do something else. Um, so a lot of that wasn't just about process of how do you attack it. It really was about managing the emotions because this can feel overwhelming. All of your, um, you know, fears about being a fraud, all that stuff can come in when you think about how scared you are to present in front of 300 people and you don't know why they chose you and all of this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's like you just need to find a way into it. Yeah, 
Uh, oh, I love that. And and I, it's also making me think, you know, about starting things, but also about finishing things. Because I I, I was thinking in preparing for this interview, I was thinking about a story that uh, something that happened a long, long time ago. So long before I, you know, had a chronic illness when I sort of had all of my health faculties, whatever. And I just become a mom. And I I wanted to I really needed a, some kind of creative outlet. And, you know, I tried things like I I braided a rug and I, you know, dipped candles and I didn't really find my thing until I started quilting. And I can remember planning a massive quilt for my, my oldest. He's now almost 17 and he was like three when I started planning this quilt. And I remember saying to my friend Shannon, I was like, oh, gosh, you know, like, it's such a big thing. I don't know how if I'm ever going to be able to finish it or whatever. And she said to me, you know what? Lots of people start things like I start things all the time. She said, you're like the only person I know who starts it, sees it through and finishes it. (laughs) And like, it got me thinking about how uh, while I it's true that I do see things through, I'm often finishing up with one thing while starting something else that's completely different. And and those things you know, some, sometimes they'll stick and sometimes they don't stick. Um, but I think maybe it informed my future creativity. And I I guess I'm thinking about a subject shift because looking back on all the ways that you have created stuff, like, you you know, you, you did paper sculpting and you've done all these really cool things in your life and, you know, you worked at a radio show and um, did you did you just kind of like look around and, and whatever medium was to hand, that was where you went? Or did you, do you feel like, was there anything that drew you to a particular type of creative outlet at that moment in your life? Um, I mean, I guess the way I would describe this is, and I think this aligns to the overall theme of our talk, is this idea of, you know, we have these creative ventures, we have what we do to earn a living, we have our relationships, our family, our kids, and this word balance comes up a lot. Mm-hmm. And and take this with a somewhat of a grain of salt. But for me, I don't believe in balance. I believe in obsessions. <laughs> and to me, an obsession is not a negative. It's this idea of having extraordinary clarity about what matters to you or what you want to do. So some of that is very big things. Like I, I work from home because I want to be with my family. So that's like the big clarity, the big obsession. Mm-hmm. But I think it's also, when I think of creative work, I get very curious about things and they're often just weird left of center things. One thing that I've learned to accept about myself is to just say, just go with your obsessions. If you're really, really, really like I'm thinking of an obsession I had a couple of years ago, if you're for some reason really curious about the history of the movie, the wizard of Oz, how it was made, all the scripts, all the props, what ended up with every, where did every single major prop end up? Um, what are the books about it? What are the documentaries about it? Even though that is a weird left of center topic, um, if you're curious about it, just go with it. Just let yourself, you know, when you've got your time at night, like do all your silly research and needling. Mm-hmm. And I find that it often, it leads somewhere. And you're curious about it for a reason. You're working something out or it, it ties into something you care about, even if it's a weird left of center thing Mm -hmm. and I think you want to give yourself permission to be curious because I do think that with artistic ventures that's where fun things come from if you look at a marketplace and say I want to be a crafter I want to do well on Etsy what's popular I'm going to do that yeah I mean that's one way to go about it and maybe if you're very clever and very ambitious you can actually do really well in a market like that I often think it's more fun and you'll kind of create your own market if you realize 
you know, yeah, I'm, I'm really obsessed with Wizard of Oz and jewelry, and I've created this this whole series of things, and you're the only one out there doing that in a very big way. And you've, you know, maybe someone's got some like Toto earrings, but you have like a whole line yeah. of earrings in Wizard of Oz. It's just sort of <laughs> so absurd. It's done so far to the nth degree that you get more out of it because you've explored it more than others, and maybe other people see it and they're like, okay, this is weird, but you seem really enthusiastic, so I'm going to actually pay attention to this. Yeah, and you know, it's what you you just mentioned, you know, somebody else has Toto earrings, but you have the whole Wizard of Oz, and I I feel like that's where a lot of collaboration can happen, because there is one viewpoint that some people take, which is, oh, we're in competition because we both make earrings, right? But there's another one where maybe their thing is dogs, and Toto happens to be like one of their dogs, and your thing is the Wizard of Oz, and there's an intersection there for for you both to come together you know a little bit and 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 I always feel like and I I bet you do too that like when you're when you are creating some kind of real connection with somebody like it's rewarding on about a bazillion levels it's it's you know it's not just about like the the money to be made or or uh, I don't know the prestige to be had or whatever it's it's more like this is a really cool thing and if it's if it's a cool thing that you like too then we can talk about it like I'm I'm my youngest is just turned 13 and he and I share an absolute obsession with the stupidest thing. I mean, it's the silliest thing. It's not stupid. It's silly though. Uh, Have you ever heard of the podcast, The Adventure Zone? Probably not. I'm going to guess not. Yeah. So it is a podcast in which three grown up guys, comedians and their dad sit around and play Dungeons and Dragons. And it is about at the same time, just so much more than that. And they've embarked on a it, it's going to be about a two and a half year sort of campaign that that's just this story is just unfolding. And my 13 year old and I are like, Oh, my God, this is incredible. And I, there, I love that there's such it's such a it's such a an off center thing. I mean, you know, who would have thought that my kid and I would both be like, I don't play Dungeons and Dragons. He loves, he doesn't loves it, but that's our intersection. Like, I think it's hilarious. It's a great story. It's, you know, it's so compelling. And he's like, and it's all that plus Dungeons and Dragons. And it's giving my child and I like a, a common bond. I think that's what I'm thinking about. It's the common bond between people who are collaborating. Yeah. And I mean, that's something I look at with creativity and success is that, it requires collaboration in all, in most instances. And I think that it also creates something that you could not create on your own. Mm-hmm. Like I was talking to someone I know locally today and she just mentioned that she noticed I share a lot of photos in my garden. Um, I'm, I love gardening. And she said she has a big, big garden. She told me about, she mentioned that she has three, uh, something like 300 different varieties of roses. Mm-hmm. Now, that blew me away. I immediately thought, like, we, I said, like, we're having coffee. We're talking about roses. Yeah. Now, I can go down to the library and for free take out 20 of the best books ever written on roses. And that would be fine. I would learn everything there is about roses. But it's something that is only now, only by having coffee with her could I have that experience of, of talking about roses with her and collaborating and exchanging cuttings or whatever it is people do with roses. Yeah. Um, it's something more of the moment. It's more of an experience. And I think when I look at the the things that a lot of creative people want to create, what they really want to create are experiences. And the the books or the albums or the events, they are they are ways of getting to that experience. Yeah. There are ways of coming to it. All di- like all different avenues. Yeah, and I, I think that people, I mean, this is something I work with a lot of authors, and, you know, there's a lot of sense of, like, I want to get to the book launch. That's my goal. 
I'm like, uh, I don't think that's your goal. <laughs> you know, I want to be a bestseller. And I'm like, I don't think that's your goal either. You know, because I know a lot of people who get to a book launch, their book doesn't sell. I know a lot of people who uh, get on media and their book doesn't sell. They don't get a core audience where they get on the bestseller list. They don't hear from people. Yeah. It's like, you want your book to be read. And then you want that reading to affect someone and you want them to bring their own life to that. You want them to years later, you might never know this, but you know, when they're going through a hard time or they're doing something, you want them to think about your character and you want them to think, you know, to shape their actions or to inspire them, or you want them to reread that book. These are, these are experiences. And, you know, we can't really capture that quite yet in, in data, in an, ag, in an Amazon algorithm, but that's really what you want. When you say, I want my book to be read or to matter, what you want is that experience, and it's something that happens inside someone's head, and maybe if you're lucky enough, you will meet them and you'll talk about it, and you'll have an indication of that. But that's what we want with our art. Yeah, I love that. I think that's so true. And, and, and if you're not getting it, you know, if you, if you're sort of, I guess that's not what I meant to say. If you're, if your eye is on the, I'm going to be a bestseller and you're really sort of narrowly focused on that, then you're missing a lot of the potential experience of it. I you think know? you want to be aware of the limits of that milestone. That's a great milestone. It is. I mean, I have nothing against anyone who wants to be that. I think a lot of people make assumptions about what comes with that. Once I'm a bestseller, then I will have a career, then I'll be earning money, then I'll get speaking gigs, then I'll get another deal. If you talk to a lot of best-selling authors, you realize, oh, oh, those things did not just come along with that at all. Yeah. Like, they work harder now. Um, one of the favorite things I've, I've reshared really um, recently was I follow Amanda Palmer, the musician and artist on Instagram, and she's married to author Neil Gaiman. Oh. And a few months back, she shared a photo of him <laughs> It's in this, this opera hall in Sydney, and they're singing a Nick Cave concert, and everyone's waiting to leave the aisles. It's over. And it's a photo of Neil singing the all by himself, writing a notebook. And she says, you know, waiting to leave the cave concert, Neil Gaiman has an idea for his book. He's, like, writing it down. <laughs> and you realize, and I kind of just, I want to write about it. So I'm like, that's, that's a very inspiring photo. And I, because around him are just people waiting to shuffle out. They're all looking at him. Yeah. And his wife... They're on a date night. They have a young child at home, and he has older children. So they're on a date. And here he is saying, I've got this idea. I have to write it down. On a date night, while all these people are staring around saying, oh, my goodness, look, it's Neil Gaiman. Wow. And I looked at his schedule and her schedule. She is in the middle. Um, and I'll get these facts a little wrong, but she's in the middle of a tour. She's writing music. He is ending a tour, starting another tour, launch, in the middle of launching two books. Wow. And that's, and that's just what I know about. Obviously, he could be having all kinds of other things going on in his life that I, would, of course, could not know about. Mm -hmm. It's not any easier for Neil Gaiman. It's maybe he gets more validation more quickly because of his body of work. But just thinking of like, you know, I don't know, imagine going on at a date night with your spouse because you've got young kids and the moment of date night, you say, oh, wait, I've got an idea for a podcast. Give me a minute. Yeah. And it's like how that spouse would be like, oh, Okay, <laughs> like that's a difficult road for him to navigate. Yeah, because you you do have the I I, I think what I, what you're saying is that it's just it's not like we might have these expectations that being a best selling author means that you you don't have a lot of the same sort of issues that like a regular person has or whatever. But 
but you, they do. I mean, and you know, as we're living our lives, it's like, those are things that you can't, you still have to, you still have to, uh, you know, figure out the really like how it works between you and your spouse about, you know, like, listen, I got to take a moment out of this date night. What did she, did she post that to like make fun of him or was it more of a like supportive kind of, I mean, not that, not that making fun of isn't supportive. I think there's, no, I, don't think she, I think, I think she is a, an artist through and through. And I think that she has that ability to truly see that this is art that we're yeah. always creating. And I, I think that she saw it as, as him being an artist and just as she is an artist. Yeah. Um, I think she just recognized it as face value. And you know what? I think um, if I was on a date with my husband and I said, Oh dude, I've got, if I forget this, it's gone. You know what I mean? He would go absolutely do it. Like, because, he, because, he, and, and if he had, you know, sometimes our dates are are interrupted by he sees a great fishing hole, and so part of our date is we go, <laughs> we go and he throws a line in because that's what he loves, you know. And um, it, so that's there's a collaboration there. It sounds like she's very supportive of Neil Gaiman, right? Yeah, I mean, it just reminds me of when I, I, I interviewed Danny Shapiro, the writer, a, a while back, and she has this wonderful book called Still Writing, and she described it as not only doesn't it get easier as you get more successful, it gets harder. And she talks about something that actually is similar to what Amanda Palmer talks about, which is um, this feeling of being a fraud, um, that, you know, maybe you have a best-selling book, but you think, oh, it was a fluke. Uh, people mm-hmm. are going to find out that I'm not really a good writer. And you actually get more worried. Um, or you mm-hmm. just maybe have 10 best-selling books, but you still worry, do I still have it? Um, yeah. it, can, it can be just as paralyzing when you think someone is, is obviously success as, as you can otherwise. I always remember reading interviews with David Letterman when he was earning $20 million a year uh, for The Tonight Show and, real, and hearing every day he'd watch back the taping, berating himself, yelling at himself on the TV at how he messed something up. Wow. And, and, just, and just thinking, well, that's his creative process. He, for some, whatever reason, that is his process and that works for him. So mm-hmm. that's fine. But that that isn't easy for him. He didn't say, dude, they're paying me $20 million a year. I've been on the air for 30 years. Of course I deserve it. He was just beating himself up night after night. Wow. Mm. I mean, I, I love the the uh, attention to craft, but I also feel like there's a it's tough to beat yourself up, you know, night after night. That's that's not, that's a tough place to be, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think everyone has their own creative process too. That was it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I want to try and kind of bring the conversation around a little bit to like to kids and and fostering their creativity. But before we get to that, I think that's that's what I'd love to kind of go out on because um, I'm really curious about how you and your your spouse kind of foster your children's creativity. Um, but I, I got to share about uh, you. You had a podcast recently where you and your guests were talking about the value of a closed door. And mm. on my office door, I have a sign. Now I've got teenagers. So like that, you know, this is this is humorous in our house. But um, I have a I have a sign on my door that says, unless you have lost a limb or are actively on fire, do not disturb. And sometimes I will hear a teenager on the other side of that door, one of my kids trying to figure out, is this an important enough thing that I can disturb my, my, my mom? And like the value of a closed door. And then sometimes they'll, they'll call and, and, you know, we'll handle it. And, and sometimes they'll go like, oh, nope, it's not. And I, I mean, I almost feel 
protected by a closed door. And I'm wondering if you feel that as well, or, or if it even works in your house, because your kids are younger than mine. No, it does work. I would say the closed door is, is it, it's a real thing. I do have a door on my office at home. It does lock, and I think that's important. I, I think it's also representative of having boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being the fact that I'll, I'll work from home, that my work is, is very creative, calls are, you know, all different times during the day. I think it's having an understanding and, and it's symbolic of having that understanding that yeah. when I have a call and I say, uh, you know, I've got to go on a call. It's going to be an hour long. There is no question that I know I will not be disturbed. Um, it's, and the door is closed during that, but there's an understanding as well. And if, and if we're just having a little break from the day and we're chatting, I get a call and I just, you know, give a look to them, they know, okay, this is, you know, an unexpected call that's very important. Yeah, yeah. And there's just that understanding. Um, and I think that's why, you know, with all of this, communication is 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 everything. It's so critical. Yeah, yeah. And, and with, I think a lot of times parents will think, <clears throat> especially with younger kids, parents will think, okay, I've got, I mean, there's a certain age where you can't, you can't sort of close a door on a toddler and, and leave them for an hour, you know what I mean? Um, but maybe when they're a little older, five, six, seven, you can, you can be like, okay, this is what's happening and this is what I'm going to do. And if you start, if you even believe that it's possible to kind of get that creative time or to get that, like, I can't, I can't be disturbed time. I feel like bringing that sort of helping them understand that early is good. And it is really about communication. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other side of that is, when you are with your kids, I mean, you have a, is, is your youngest, is he three months old yet? I don't even think he's three months old yet, right? So I have one son who is turning seven soon and one who is not quite four months. Not quite four months. Oh my gosh. I, I really love those ages. I'm, I'm actually loving having teens. They're real. it's really fun. It's a really interesting age. And my, my master's degree ended at age nine. So when my oldest turned 10, I was like, oh my God, like I'm not prepared for this at all. Like, I don't know what to do with somebody who's older than nine, but I'm having a ball with them there. It's good fun. So um, how do you guys foster creativity at home with, with your, with your kids? Do you have any, any thoughts on how like listeners can, can do that in their homes as well? Yeah, well, I, I can just tell you what we do. I, I don't know what will work for anyone else. Mm, I, oh, definitely. I'll say that I, I, I believe, and I'll only talk for myself as well, um, I believe in under-scheduling, and I believe in the power of boredom. Oh, I love um, it. You're speaking my language, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we have a, a six-and-a-half-year-old, and, a half year old, and we're, we're both around. So there's a lot of little interaction, but there are plenty of times where he finishes doing something, you hear the little pitter-patter run right up, like, what do I do now? And I'm like, and it's just like, you know, I'll say it with sympathy, but it's like, I don't know, you know, it's like, go figure it out. Yeah. Um, I, I think that that's where you find places to be, to explore. Um, we, we don't have a TV in our house, and that's not some big statement for us when, you know, one year we were moving 12 years ago, and as an experiment, I said, oh, let's, you know, let's not bring the TV and we'll just try it for like a 30 days. And we just never got another one. Wow. Um, so the, the nice thing about that that I notice is that the house is always quiet in terms of there's not some um, intruding chatter that is never off where you're always reacting, you're always listening. 
So we, we under schedule in general. We don't, we don't plan a lot of activities at all. We, we say no to a lot of things that are say you know, that we're allowed to say no to. Yeah. Um, and we, we look for this idea of, you know, boredom is good. You know, boredom means you can read. It means you can go in the garden. It means you can sit in the living room and talk. Yeah. It means you can, you know, that's what's fun. It's fun for me when you walk by a room. It's fun for me. It's quiet. And you're like, uh oh, and you like, you kind of peek in a room and, you know, yeah. or, or someone's doing something. You're like, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, in, in a way, it's a con- it- oh, sorry. I was going to say, in a way, it's a constraint. I mean, boredom is a constraint. You have to figure that out, you know? Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And the other way is, I mean, my wife is an artist. Um, so she, you know, has tons of, of craft supplies around. Um, she has lots of ideas. And I, I think that, you know, I don't know how much that rubs off. I know it's very easy for them to say, let's do a project. And we have the raw material around. Yeah. And she doesn't have a fear of doing that. Um, she was an art teacher for years, actually. So for oh, her, it's... Awesome. Um, it's something she's trained for, which is really nice. But I think that without the board and without the space, there would be a lot of room to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there, it would be too full of other stuff. So I, I love this too. It, it makes me think that your wife is a little bit like your Mrs. Flanagan for your for your kids. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, looking at it. Yeah. So I can't. I always cannot believe how fast this hour goes. It's it's Dan Blank. It has been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you. Um, I love, uh, it's been wonderful to chat about these, and these are topics I love digging into, so I appreciate your generosity. Oh, yeah. It's it's really fun. I love these kind of deep, like, meta-parental things, because we're more than just producers of children. Like, we've, we've you know, we've got a lot going on up in our heads, I think, and sometimes when you can talk to somebody like you who knows how to tap into that, I think that's just so wonderful. So thank you very, very much. Listeners, you you can connect with Dan at his website. It is wegrowmedia.com. And there you can sign up for his newsletter, which, as you already know, I highly recommend. And here's something cool that I want to share about. So Dan, when you sign up for the newsletter, Dan's first question is you get an email from him that basically says, what are you struggling with? I don't remember the exact words, but it's something like that. So I shared back that I what I was struggling with. And since then, I've made a bunch of changes to my website, the ones that make it clear for you when you visit that it's the home of a podcast, that it's a podcast for parents of young children. It makes it easier for you to connect with me and easier to sign up for a training class or a challenge or get a free guide. And those changes came about because of Dan Blank and, and I, because he asked me the question, what are you struggling with? And and I just really Thing. I don't know. I think that's really special. It's it's meant a lot to me. So if you want the inspiration and the joy of something positive in your inbox each week and you want some concrete help with a creative idea you're struggling with, sign up for Dan's newsletter. And to connect with me, go to weturnedoutokay.com. You can go to Instagram, find me there at weturnedoutokay. I'm on Twitter at Stone Age Techie. And I try to really be in those places like frequently because I think they're a lot of fun. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. It, it means so much that you have Dan and I in your earballs today. And finally, I have a special thanks for our producer, the 20-time winner of the Husband of the Year Award, Benjamin Culp. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next time. just getting in here at the end of episode 179 because after we finished up our conversation I asked Dan if I could write to him and send him one of the questions that we did not have a chance to get to on the show today it's a it's a you know it's a long show and 
he he had a he had a, what's called a hard out. He had to get busy with some some work on their house. So, but Dan was kind enough to take my question and give me a response. And so I'm getting in here to give that to you. So Dan said, so I said, here's the question. I said, I know there are listeners to our conversation who want to get started on something creative, but maybe saying, well, that's all well and good for you guys. But my situation is especially tough because dot, dot, dot. And then I asked, what help I asked Dan, what help can you offer to the listener who wants to be creative, but is struggling to find the time and maybe the resources as well? Because we all know that this is not easy, right? To come up with time and and maybe financial resources. If you want to take a pottery class or something, and it means arranging childcare, and it means spending, you know, a couple hundred bucks for eight weeks, whatever. There's a lot of barriers to that, to, to, to doing the creative things that we really, really want to do, whatever they are. And uh, so anyway, that was my question for Dan was what, what would you say to a listener who like really wants to, but is just struggling with like finding time, finding resources. And Dan writes, for the person who is struggling to find the time, energy, or resources, I would encourage them to consider doing a single push-up. I love this response. What is the smallest action they can take for their creative work each week? For instance, no one has time to go to the gym. We are all far too busy, but everyone has the time to drop to the ground and do a single push-up. You can do it in your bedroom, the kitchen, the bathroom, your office, a hallway, the garage, the lawn, and it takes eight seconds. The first one won't work. It may take you five days to do one. Then you will get better at it. Then you can do two in 10 seconds, then three in 13 seconds, and so on. This becomes a gateway habit. He writes, I got the single push-up metaphor from a Tim Ferriss podcast interview, by the way. And I think it's really important. Thank you, Dan, for sharing, you know, who this came from. In other words, Dan finishes up the smallest habit, find the smallest habit you can reasonably do, even with your constraints, it will lead to others. And I really feel like this is so true. It's like the idea that it can seem so overwhelming to us and that we just think, oh my gosh, I'll never, ever, ever be able to do that. And if we can break it down and break it down until we've got one tiny step, one single push up, one God knows what, I mean, one, you know, who knows what I'd love to hear what you come up with. What, what would your one single push up be in your creative endeavor, whatever it is? Is it, is it installing garage band on your mobile device or, or something like that so that you can tinker with music, even if you can't if you don't have the space for a set of drums or a guitar or something like that, or the money for a guitar, there's, there's, there's always something tiny that you can do. And I remember listening to a Freakonomics podcast, or possibly I heard that I read this in a Freakonomics book, but it definitely, I'm associating with the Freakonomics guys who are awesome. If you don't, if you haven't ever heard of them, they talk about how there's, there's one single determinant that people have who complete something, who, who take on a huge, big challenge and complete it. Like, for example, they, they cite smoking. Like, what is the one determinant that, that shows that someone is going to quit smoking? And the one determinant for that is that they have tried to quit smoking before. And I, I love that idea because it's like, it may not work. Dan points this out. It won't work the first time, <laughs> but you have to keep trying. The first time somebody tries to quit smoking, they often do not quit smoking. But the fourth, the 10th, 
at some point, if they keep going and they don't give up, they quit smoking. And I know this is true of my dad. My dad was a smoker for a lot of years and he tried three or four different methods. And finally he hit upon one that, that really, really helped and that did the trick. And if that's where you are in your life, whether it's going to the gym, whether it's playing the guitar, taking a pottery class, doing something that is creative, whether it's even stopping smoking, uh, just take that one tiny step and that's what will help. That's what will do the trick. So that is uh, the conclusion of this episode. I wanted to just get in here and say at the same time that it is Tuesday, the 29th of August, if you're listening to this in real time. And on a week, well, a little less than a week from now, on Monday, the 4th of September, our challenge starts and it's going to be a close, it's going to close. Like once it is Sun, uh, sorry, your last day to sign up for it is Sunday the 3rd, because on Monday the 4th, I'm closing the challenge. That is when it starts. And once it starts, you can't get in. So definitely, definitely go and sign up for the Streamline Your Mornings Challenge. If you're struggling with mornings at this time of year, we'll get school beginning real soon, if it hasn't already for you, uh, this is this is something you can do. This is your small step, actually. I mean, think of it that way. This is your tiny step that you can take to make something better in your day, in your life, as, as you as your kids start school or as you get back into the swing of things with like daycare and God knows what all, as we all kind of buckle down and get serious for the learning year here. And the Streamline Your Mornings Challenge is going to help you because it's an email in your inbox every day for five days that's got a step for you to take, something small, something that you can build on so that your mornings are not as chaotic and insane as they are right now. And also it gets you entry into the We Turned Out Okay private Facebook group. On Friday the 8th, we are doing a live Ask Me Anything Facebook live uh, conclusion to the challenge. And it's an Ask Me Anything. So, So I'm thinking back to school. I mean, if you've got questions about streamlining your mornings or some other back to school issue, you want to be a part of this because then you can have you can have access to that uh, Facebook Live as well. And I can answer some of your questions there. And so that's where I'm going to leave it today. I really uh, thank you so much for listening. I think it's been this has been one of my I mean, I feel like this I say this about so many of the conversations I have. I'm so lucky just so lucky and so grateful that I get to be the person who talks to these people and then brings this information to you. And today was no exception. So that's about it for We Turned Out Okay this week, or actually not this week, because there'll be a Thursday Your Child Explained episode. <laughs> it's, it's it for today, though. So all right, I hope you're having a great week. And uh, we will talk to you soon. Cheers. Bye. Thank you for listening to We Turned Out Okay. I want a date to Australia. Find us on the web at weturnedoutok.com, where you'll find show notes and more. What do you call cheese that's not yours? Nacho cheese. And remember, we only go around once. To be the best parents we can be, let's relax and enjoy the ride. I want to pee in the woods.
Dirt, 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 dirt.